This is Dune Talk, a DuneNewsNet.com production. Join us now for the latest Dune news, reactions, and lively discussions. Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, part two of our uh, series, our movie review series, where we're going through the, the Dune movie scene by scene, uh, talking about uh, yeah all, all the details that you may have missed or that you may have uh, questions about and giving your insights after watching the movie <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> um, so yeah, lo looking forward to go through this all with you. So last, last episode, we gave our overall uh, reactions to the uh, to the movie and now we're actually going to start with the first part of the movie uh, looking at uh, Cal then and, and take it from there. Uh, so this is uh, Marcus Gabriel, your editor at dunisnet.com, uh, here today with Garen. Hey, it's Garen again. Good to see everyone. I can be found on Twitter at Dune Companion. And uh, welcome back, Simon. Hey guys, I can officially talk about the movie now. Really excited. And uh, we have a special guest uh, joining us again today from the UK, uh, Mark from Dune Info. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, glad to be back. Thanks for inviting me. So, M Mark, how many times have you seen the movie? Four times so far, and right. counting. <laughs> cool. So we're going to go into all those uh, impressions and and reactions. Dune movie news. So we we have one big story for today, and that's of course that Dune has uh, has premiered in uh, North America, South America, China, the, the UK. So. Pretty much most in the world uh, can see it right now. I know that there are uh, some countries where it's not yet possible, um, unfortunately. But um, yeah, the Dune has premiered widely now. And in its first um, weekend at the US box office, um, Dune has hit uh, 40.1 million uh, domestically. Uh, so that exceeded those, those early industry uh, projections. And to put this in perspective, this is the best opening uh, three-day opening for a Warner Brothers movie since 2019, so since before the pandemic. So wh whatever, however you want to like put the narrative, I mean, this this is a, a, a big win. And on top of that, um, Dune has uh, has crossed the 200 million mark uh, globally. So there's another 20 million that, that came in from, uh, from China. Um, I haven't checked the UK numbers yet uh, today. I know that uh, it was... 3.3 million from from Friday, so uh, we'll have to see what the what the final totals are going to be from the weekend. But yeah, look, look, looking promising all, all around, and that's just uh, uh, you, you know th those um, those three regions. And then of course we have all of uh, South America, some additional uh, countries in, in Europe that is that is open. So th th this is uh, looking good. Uh, Mark, any initial reactions to the to where we are at this stage? Uh, yeah, it's just looking really good. Uh, you know, 200 million, so on a budget of 165 million, uh, reportedly, that's, I know there's marketing costs and stuff like that, and all of that won't be going back to Legendary and Warner Brothers, but even so, that that looks a very good, healthy uh, amount of money, all things considered, with HBO Max and the pandemic. Uh, they have spent a lot on marketing on, the, on this movie, they, they haven't, uh, you know, they, they haven't skimped on, on, on that, so the, the total expenses for, for including the marketing is going to come out quite high. I mean, uh, realistically, I think it, it will be challenging for the movie to, to break even at least in the immediate uh, short term. But I mean, that, that's, that's not the expectation this, this year. Like they're, they're looking at how, how well the movie does in the box office, HBO Max, uh, merchandising, uh, all, the, all those other, other factors. And uh, just uh, yeah, going, going back to the point, uh, 
know, Denis Villeneuve had said, like, it would have to be a disaster at the box office for part two not to happen. This doesn't look like a disaster to me. So let's not uh, spend too much time on the news because we have a lot to, uh, to dig into. Full, full spoilers here. So if you haven't seen the movie, uh, go back a couple of episodes to our spoiler-free impressions. Or we have one, one episode where we recently talked about the Dune board game. Uh, both great episodes. But for now, like, uh, be, be warned, we're not going to hold, hold back on, on any spoilers. I must not fear, for fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. Uh, so, uh, Mark, I'll start with, with you. Uh, first of all, overall reactions, because you, you haven't been on a show for a while and you've watched the movie multiple times. I want to hear your, your overall thoughts, like what, what do you think of this, this movie? What did you like most? Uh, yes, spectacular. Uh, so I first saw it uh, beginning of October, and that was in a 700 seat cinema down in London for the uh, press one of the press previews uh, and that was great you know it was uh, I think we did an article on uh, June Newsnet uh, you know it was packed uh, everyone was very attentive you know there was no uh, phone glare or people shuffling in the seats everyone was uh, enraptured for two and a half hours uh, round of applause at the end uh, it was absolutely great uh, I saw it again yesterday at the IMAX in Bradford. Uh, again, that was a full house, pretty much, I think. Uh, huge screen. Um, yeah, everyone seems to be loving it. I love it. Um, can't wait to see it again and uh, <laughs> and get it on 4K Blu-ray when it comes out next year, I think. so. But yeah, I, I want to see it as many times as I can in the theatre and in many different formats because it's probably going to be another couple of years before we get a chance to see it again because I'm hoping... We'll show it again before part two. Yeah, so uh, Simon, um, you weren't on the last episode, but you have watched the movie also multiple times. I have, and honestly, I was blown away. I, my theater was packed for a Thursday night in Lacey, Washington, which is kind of a small town, but I don't think there was many seats left. Um, it was also kind of interesting having my mask on. I felt like a Fremen as I was watching it, especially when we get to Arrakis. But overall, amazing. There's a couple of performances that I can't stop thinking about. Oscar Isaac is just amazing. There's a scene where we'll get to that eventually in our review part with the Baron that is just chilling and haunting. Uh, the actor, and I'm, I'm totally forgetting his name, who plays Piter, is probably the standout actor for me right now. You know, it's funny because he was my favorite part of Suicide Squad and love everyone in the cast of Dune, but he was just so creepy and eerie. I loved it. Uh, I have a couple of nitpicks and we'll get to them. As a pug owner, I'm very disappointed. There was not <laughs> even one pug. Um, yeah, but overall, a good solid 9.5. Um, I've seen it only once in the theater. I've seen it on HBO Max quite a bit, and it's been in the background of the house. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I, I would have liked to see more of uh, David Dasmalkin, uh, um, and like he, he's been so enthusiastic about this this film promoting it in, in all the different interviews. Uh, so, Garen, and I know that you've now seen the movie I think two times in in cinemas. Uh, last time we we spoiled it for for you before you got to see it. Uh, <laughs> what are your uh, your thoughts? Yeah, no, you guys didn't spoil the experience for me at all. Um, I. I just thought it was just a, a perfect balance of someone who loves the book, 
loves this world that, that Frank Herbert created and is really a fan of Denis. And I just thought he hit on all cylinders. I just came out of there. I, in fact, the, the experience of being in both of the IMAX theaters, I went to two different IMAX theaters. And by the way, IMAX theaters are not all created equally. Well, I'll talk about that in, another time. But And immediately as the, as the, the film ends, people just start talking and they start grouping in clumps all throughout the, you know, the lobby out into the parking lot. People are still talking about the movie. And that was my experience internally. Um, I just kept experiencing this in my mind all throughout the day. I had to go see it the next day uh, just because I wanted to be back in that, in that world again. And, um, and at first, you know, my, my mind did pick apart some of the things that were so important to me in the book, but overall, I thought Denis just absolutely nailed creating a visual sensory experience that it, that Frank Herbert would be absolutely proud of. So I, I couldn't be more happy. Also, Garen, the whole entire time when I was watching it, with all the only thoughters, I was like, oh, I know someone that's going to be happy when he sees this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they couldn't have been better. It was There were so many more shots than what I'd seen in all the promos and stuff. And Man, just a, just a great, it, you know, not only a great design, but also it plays such an important part in the story, you know, the different ornithopters and just thought it was awesome. And uh, Garen, you sort of uh, alluded to that, of course, uh, because this is a two and a half uh, hour adaptation of like uh, approximately half of the book. And of course, the, the, there are scenes in the book that, uh, that didn't make it into the movie. Was that disappointing to you at all? Honestly, Marcus, it was at first because I was so attached to some of those elements, but it was similar to my Lord of the Rings experience. And I don't want to compare those too much. I want to compare the good elements of Lord of the Rings to Dune, but it's like, I understood after thinking about it, why Denis made those choices. And because you, you can't, you can't take, we all know this. You can't take a book and just mirror it right onto a film. You can't really do that. So I thought the decision-making was perfect to make an, an adaptation. So was I initially a little disappointed a couple of times, but the way he transformed those uh, experiences to kind of capture the essence or the spirit of some of those scenes from the book, just absolutely nailed it. I, I, I don't know how anyone could have even done a better job, actually. Yeah, and I, and I know, uh, Mark, I, I enjoyed... Um... Like your your coverage of uh, as you mentioned of the press screening and you had given your uh, your initial review to the movie, um, and you, you had mentioned the, the same thing that there are of course like scenes that uh, that didn't make it into the book and I, I liked how you how you described it that you know like for for longtime fans of the of the movie you know they they can still have it in their mind that these are hope uh, happening off screen. Um, so like, did you have any additional uh, thoughts on that now that you've watched the movie four times? Do you feel that? Don't, it was the right decision not to include um, the, uh, those uh, scenes or uh, like, is there anything that you would have really preferred that uh, stayed in? <laughs> I don't think I disagree with any of the creative choices. You know, every, you know they've edited it uh, to his vision and we know that there are scenes that have been shot that have been deleted. Um, and I'm hoping we see those on deleted scenes one day. I know Denny Villanueva said that you know, that cut is his cut. There, there won't be a director's cut that's longer, but I'm hoping we do get at least get those deleted scenes. Um, but yeah, it's I think it's perfect as it is. And that was some of my nitpicks when I said I have several nitpicks. 
but I get it. You can't have, especially this is only the first half. Also, it'll be a 15 hour book, you know, I mean, a 15 hour movie of a book, but there are some crucial scenes that I love so much in the book that sadly are not there, but it works. And I understand for editing purposes for also, I remember when I was going to film school, the first rule was always make a short movie so you can turn it around as many times in a day. So like that people can see in the theater and, you know, for a two and a half hour movie, I think no one ever looked at their watch or their phone and being like, oh, God, we're only 20 minutes into this. When is this going to pick up? You know, I'm I'm happy that those scenes were shot. Like, I, I agree with Mark. I agree with you, Marcus. I feel like those scenes do exist somewhere in our head canon. We know there is more of Dr. Yui. We know there is more of Jessica and Paul. I mean, the nerd that I am, I came home and I watched all the trailers. I was like... Hmm, there's dialogue in there that I don't remember watching. Turn on HBO Max. You know, like one of the biggest scenes that we keep seeing is the promo shot of Jessica saying, it's time. I can't find that anywhere in the film. So overall, I understand why it's there. I would love when it comes out on Blu-ray or, you know, iTunes or whatever, that we have that option of seeing those deleted scenes. And without going to full spoiler about Caledon, how cool would it have been to see Gurney just rock out and play a song for Paul, you know? <laughs> and there's a picture of it in the art of, and soul of Dune. So I'm like, oh, you know, it's out there somewhere. Uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to um, to actually see and hear Gurney play those. And um, I, I think Hans Zimmer said that he actually wrote a, a song for it. Um, so, yeah, come on, <laughs> include that somewhere, please. <laughs> One other overview, uh, Marcus, I just want to mention is the the decision to not include actual images of the emperor or or fade or you know a couple of other characters. At first, before going into the film, I was I was a little concerned about that because when you read the book, those are those are pretty important, like third stage guild navigator and, and people like that that are so critical in the story, and yet. I think that was a really great choice because for so many people, if you don't have a book that you're going through at a, at a very slow pace and you're absorbing all this information, an audience would have been absolutely overwhelmed by the number of characters. Like even the fact that I think if, if you guys correct me, I think they only say Thufur Hawat's name one time. I think Paul just says it to him. Maybe they say his last name a couple of times, but it's like, I, I wonder, did people catch Thufir's name? Like, because he's a key character. But I think Denis was really careful about not overwhelming the first time viewer or the newbie with so many names and so many characters that they don't know what's going on. So I, I think putting this story into the hands of, of a, a master craftsman like Denis, I think really paid off because the story is it is overwhelming, but it's not overwhelming in a way that makes your brain shut down. It's overwhelming like, wow, what an incredible universe. I want to explore more of this. So I, I, I really, like you said, Mark, I think the creative decision-making was right on. You know, going to the Emperor then, I love that we keep hearing about him. We keep hearing about, sorry to use a Star Wars reference, uh, a Phantom Menace, you know, <laughs> but I love, it's very much 
also one thing if you take a movie like butch cassidy and the sundance kid which i hate westerns but that's one of my favorite like top 20 movies of all time we keep hearing about bolivia 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 this whole entire time so in a way it's a character and finally the end they go spoiler they go to bolivia but you're building that tension so when bolivia shows up finally you're like oh crap i get it and you know part of my fanboy was attitude was like okay they're gonna say fey rafa right about now maybe now okay <laughs> they didn't but also i'm curious to know who they're gonna cast as fey i know we've talked about this in the past but who is the emperor gonna be played by you know we're gonna have years of in our headcanon being like well maybe this actor maybe this actor also we have mention of erlon just but it's so subtle and you're right it's not sensory overload for newbies and uh, mark you, you touched on the, on the that the art of soul uh, i understand that you've you've received a limited edition copy uh yeah that came it's a it's a weighty tome but it arrived last week uh so it's Benny Gesserit symbol on the back and the art of soul of June in a Benny Gesserit script on the front. Uh, and then that comes, uh, it's a pretty hefty. Let me take the book out. So you get the, the art and soul book with Harkonnen and Atreides symbol on the front. Inside it's identical to the, um, yes. to the standard edition. Um, and then you also get... Um, a book of photography uh, by the director of photography, Greg Fraser, and poems uh, and writing by Josh Brolin in there as well, which is very nice. Uh, comes with a autograph card of several people. <laughs> I'm not going to list them all. And also a nice little booklet, which is a replica of the Fremkit instruction manual uh, that we see in the movie briefly, um, telling you how to inflate the still tent, how the uh, thumper works and stuff like that. I am trying to translate that, but I don't know if you've seen uh, the the guy who did all the, the languages, David uh, Peterson. He's He's put a PDF of all the characters, and there are hundreds of characters. So looking up every single letter and symbol takes a while. <laughs> So I might, I might have to give up on that one. But uh, yeah, it's it's a lovely edition, very expensive. And the, the first set has sold out, but there's another set of 500 without Timothy's autograph. But yeah, a, a lovely, lovely edition. So let's um, go and start looking at the beginning of the movie. So um, I guess let's let's start all the way at the beginning. Like even, even before the logo comes on, on the screen, we, we, we hear that... Uh, that guttural alien uh, sounding voice uh, dreams are messages from the from the deep. Um, Mark, uh, now that you've seen the movie four four times, what what does that mean to you? Uh, well, the interesting thing for that for me is that the voice sounds like it's the Sardaukar uh, language, which is an unusual choice for that. Um, may, maybe it's not the Sardaukar, maybe it's a navigator or something. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's very much the one of the themes of the movie is you know Paul's prescient visions um, and the ancestral memories, um, which is uh, the Benny Gesserit voices are introduced 
quite heavily in the film. That's that's not something that was in the Lynch version at all, but um, it's in the voice. You get an overlay of other voices and, and Paul's visions. You hear those female voices, those Benny Gesserit uh, ancestral voices coming through. So I, it's an unusual choice. I can't think of any other film that has that has a message even before the you know the the studio logos. Um, but yeah, in several screenings, there's, there's been kind of a, you can feel a reaction rippling through the audience. It's like, what was that? <laughs> Nobody was expecting, a lot of people weren't expecting that. So it's a something that grabs you from the start. I do agree with Mark. It does sound more Sadakar. After I was watching the movie, I was like, wait, that sounded like that voice in the beginning. You guys, I what I think about that opening line is it's it's a little indication that this is going to be a completely different experience than what you're used to. This is not a Marvel movie. This is not Star Wars. This is not Lord of the Rings. This is something completely different. And it's almost like this mental subconscious cue because they don't, they don't, the average moviegoer doesn't have any idea what that means, right? As, 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 a, as a fan of the book, I have a sense of what that means. I have a pretty good idea what that means. But um, I just thought that was actually kind of a subtle little brilliant, you know, milestone to say, get ready. This is going to be nothing like what you're used to. So prepare, you know, yeah. and, and I, and I agree with you guys. I, I, on the second time watching it, I recognized that guttural language when that, when all the Sardaukar forces were out in their, in their formation and that guy was doing the hand signs on top of that tower. And that's what it was. It sounded exactly the same to me. So why it's the Sardaukar, I don't know. That's that's really interesting. I'm sure we'll learn. So, and then um, once the, the movie opens, we go immediately into the opening uh, narration from uh, from Shani. So uh, we've discussed that in, when we watched the IMAX screening. So it, it's, it's basically like, um, yeah, Chani is, is explaining the situation in, in her world. You, you see things right from the beginning from a feminine uh, perspective. So even though um, the character of Chani and Zanaya is not in this movie very much, I mean, it's it's really key that, that she's the one narrating this, this opening of the movie and setting the context of, uh, you know, the her peoples uh, have been oppressed. The Harkonnens are now leaving. They, you know, the Fremen don't know the reason. They just know that someone else is going to come. Are they going to be uh better are they going to be even worse than the than the harkonnens you know they they, they don't know what their their fate is going to be garrett in terms of um like the introduction to, to a movie because uh in other cases you've had like an actual someone talking to the screen narration like how how do you feel that this has worked now that you've seen the movie i thought it was brilliant i actually thought i'd love to know how many uh drafts they did to to get that opening right and to make the creative decisions to have it be focused on the Fremen uh, point of view. But I, I think it's really important that my, my attention is focused on the native people of Arrakis. And now I see, you know, the Atreides house coming to, to take stewardship. And I think that again, is Denis helping the, the uninitiated moviegoer to be like, oh, okay, there's, there's these people and then there's these people and I need to care about these people. I need to care about the, the Fremen because th this is their home world. I also need to care about the Atreides because they're in the middle of this, you know, political challenge. So um, I actually thought it was, it was a brilliant opening and, and it just immediately 
ground you on, because we're going to start in, in Caladan, but it actually grounds you on Arrakis. So this is the place we're going to. And this is the place, the movie's name is Dune, right? Which is Arrakis. So I just think they were so careful about making sure that as a moviegoer, I'm identifying with the key elements that will help me to go through the rest of this experience on, on, on screen. And then immediately they have that transition because you have the uh, Chani like as, as in a dream and you have Paul waking up and that shows the importance of this connection that you're going to see throughout uh, the movie because uh, this is going to be a recurring thing all throughout the movie where Paul is, is forming this, this connection. So like, later on when, when he meets her, like, you know, he, he knows uh, who she is. So um, going into the, that transition, basically you, you, you have uh, on Cal then and you immediately come to the, to the breakfast scene where, uh, where Lady Jessica and, uh, and Paul are, are sitting at the table. Uh, so starting with, with you, Mark, uh, I know that there's so much details in, in, that, in that scene, like what stands out for you uh, once you've uh, watched it multiple times? Yeah, I think it's very similar to you know our reactions after the IMAX preview. Um, it's just the the pacing of it and the the the, the opportunity for the movie to breathe. You know, we have a, a pause where Paul tries to center himself before trying the voice a second time, and we get the shots of the the wind charms and the painting and the marquette of the of the bullfighting. Um, it's just a, a lovely pace uh, and something. You know, I, I enjoy I enjoy that scene. It's a slow scene. It's a wonderful scene with mother and son. Um, it's beautiful. And just going back to Garin's point about how how many iterations they did for trying to start the movie. Um, apparently, uh, the very first draft tried to start it with the Gomjabar scene, which is how the book starts. Um, but you know, Denny has said that you know you you were just throwing people in at the deep end. Uh, uh, another version of the script has a prologue, um, but sort of an animated prologue by the Reverend Mother, um, talking about the guild and the different planets and the spice. Um, so I don't know how many versions they went to, but yeah, I agree. Cent centering it and grounding it on Arrakis at the very start, a brilliant idea. I love that breakfast scene so much. Like we had seen it when we saw the IMAX preview. And when it happened, when we saw it again, I was like, oh, I missed this. I missed this little beautiful little scene right here. You know, what's also interesting is I agree with everyone. The opening's great because they introduced you to the world of Dune. You know who everyone is. And right away, you have that quiet, little intimate scene between our two main characters when you really think about part one. You know, we're introduced to Jessica. We're introduced to Paul and their relationship. It's very much like what Rebecca Ferguson has been saying all along. She's his mother, but also his teacher. And I think it's so crucial that you get introduced to those two characters, have a quiet moment to know who they are and what's you know, their relationship. I, I think it's brilliant. I love and all the stuff with the bull. I think it's so crucial. While I was watching this movie, I was like, you know, one of the words I would describe it is legacy. And that's something that Oscar Isaac, Duke Leto, makes very clear to Paul. Like, this is, you know, Arrakis will be my legacy to you. You know, and also, is it just me or does that painting kind of look like um, Patrick Stewart? I know I have probably said that when we did the IMAX show, but yeah. And I really would love one of those little maquettes. 
But yeah, like you, you see all the, this, this history. So for someone who's familiar with the Dune universe and all the lore around it, there's like every single detail that, uh, you know, it, it means, means something. The bullfights were, were an important aspect of, um, of the, the, the culture on, on, uh, on Caladan, like uh, Paulus Atreides uh, him, himself uh, fought, fought the bulls in the, in the arena. That was uh, like important point because right off the bat, like you're you're getting the introduction to the to two main characters because uh, Lady Jessica and Paul, like we're going to see the the whole movie throughout their their perspective. So there's going to be a lot of other characters, but some of them are like in the movie for a short bit. But these are the characters who we we follow throughout the whole whole point, and they have a different uh, journey going through. Then we. Um, we we get the transition, you know that that uh, Paul has to get get ready for you know the um, the, the ceremony. Uh, so so they're, they're going to have to uh, like accept, you know. And and uh, Paul makes makes a comment like, you know, if we already know know we have to go, like, what's the point? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's ceremony. Um, and uh, one part of the exposition that I really liked because in the next film you have like Paul actually sitting like with a projector device and he's basically learning he's he's doing the the research and learning about Arrakis Arrakis he he knows he's going there and I felt that was like so so natural it's it's better than having someone like on the screen like telling you the story but you see like Paul himself uh discovering like uh, Garen did did anything stand out to you about like that scene with with Paul alone like uh learning about uh, the his destination yeah, I really love that. So those are film books. I remember reading uh, the, the novel back in the 80s and wondering, like, even in the 80s, a film book sounded like old, like that was old technology, you know, but I thought it was a brilliant design. Um, I, I I actually did think of Lynch's Dune a little bit in that in that moment, um, but I thought it was handled much better in, in this version um, because it, it actually felt uh, like it was some technology being able to project a 3d image and, and it's instructing you and you're learning from this, this, you know, narrator voice that sounds like something from an encyclopedia. Um, But it also is introducing the audience to a lot of important facts and preparing them again to know more about this planet and, and what it's, what it's going to be like, because that's where they're going. Um, So no, I, I really, I really enjoyed that part of it. Um, Another thing I wanted to mention in the uh, in the earlier Jessica and, and Paul scene is if, if someone would have told me that Denis was going to play a little bit more with the dialogue, I actually love what he did where you hear Paul say things like what a teenager would say today. Like when, when Jessica says, you know, make me give you the water. And he's like, mom, I just woke up. You know, <laughs> that line, mom, I just woke up is brilliant because I'm immediately, I'm centered on, this is a son and a, and a, and a mother, and this is real. This feels natural. It doesn't feel weird and mechanical. And so anyway, I, that happens a few times throughout the film where, where Paul's dialogue feels really realistic for a teenager. And I like that it made it more real for me. Um, but to answer your question about, about the film book scene, um, I loved it. And it wasn't very long, but you actually learn quite a bit in those short few seconds. I had mentioned this uh, in a past episode, but 
you, you immediately see the contrast because you, you've had the, the introduction from, from Shani earlier on and, you know, you, you get to see the Fremen perspective, but now you see like Paul watching this official video and it's talking about how the Fremen are, are dangerous and, you know, like putting them as, as the bad guys, maybe like almost like terrorists uh, in, in a way. So you see like how, you know, the different sources of, of information and how, how they conflict with each other. And um, yeah, about the part about technology, because of course, Dune is a universe where there, there aren't computers. So there's no artificial intelligence or any, anything like that, because that's how uh, that society has, has evolved and focused more on, on the development of the human mind. But there is advanced technology. Like we see those, um, yeah, this film, film book for one, you see also the, the glow globes that are, that are floating through the hallways as, as they're walking by. So the, and of course the, the highliners. So there, there is very advanced technology. It's just that it's uh, when it comes to the, I guess the thinking aspect, then, then that's uh, left entirely up to, up to the humans. Very much two point of views. And it already shows you kind of like the politics of there's the lower class, which in this movie you can say it's the Fremens, and then you got the bourgeoisie or tradies. You know, it's very much like, are you gonna watch Fox or are you gonna watch CNN? You know, here in the states. <laughs> so I I love that scene, and once again, like you guys were saying, it's telling us for like especially for newbies, here's what you gotta know. So for someone that doesn't know anything, you're probably gonna think, oh crap, Fremens are bad. They're you know, the Atreides are my heroes. I'm going to go through this whole entire journey being like, yay, team Atreides. So it's very important introducing this world. And it's very much like Paul. So Paul doesn't know that much about the Fremen. He knows a little bit about them. But if he's told early on that they're dangerous, as the audience, we're going on that journey with Paul. And I love, I'm looking at it on HBO Max on my second monitor, and I love just the set design. They're moving. They're getting ready for the move. It's not like, hey, we're moving soon, and there's still a bunch of stuff. Like, the movers are there. Yeah, and then we have the, the scene that um, the uh, Imperium um, uh, envoy arrives on um, on Caladan, so to have the formal uh, announcement of, of House of Trades going to, um, to Arrakis. Um, so... Yeah, I think the, the the key thing for for this scene is is and this was one of the ones that 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 wasn't in the in the book, so just just like the breakfast scene as as well actually. But here again, you really get to see House Atreides. Like it really introduces you you know like this is the honorable House uh, House Atreides. You get to see their their leadership. You get to to see like uh, the the pride that that they have in them and the uh, the dynamics of of power already in the in the in the universe. So what stood out to you most in, the, in this uh, scene, Simon? So I feel like we've talked about the scene quite a bit because of the IMAX. Uh, it's the scale. It's the costume design, the coloring. Um, it's just beautiful. And it is very much, this is House of Trades. Technically, House of Trades is a military family, and it shows that military background. You know, we know that whole entire scene with Gurney Smile, I am but it just shows very much they're here. They're ready for this. Duke Leto might not be ready for this journey. And you can tell that he, he's not sure of himself. You know, he probably knows that something's going to happen to him. I feel the whole entire movie, I feel when Oscar Isaac is on screen, he has fear, you know, and I know fear is a big part of this whole entire story, but fear is the mind killer for him because 
I think even at this point, he knows he's doomed. You know, full spoiler again, he doesn't make it out alive early on in the movie. So I think at this point, he knows that he's doing this for Paul. We see that relationship between Paul and Leto. Like he cares about his son. Everything that he's doing is doing it for his son. Leaving this legacy, using that word again, for Paul. Yeah, and there's so much to pick up on, and including like who, who, who all is in that envoy. Uh, Mark, what, what did you think about the portrayal of the members of the, the guild? Yeah, they're not on screen very long. Um, it's not entirely clear who they are or what they are, but it seems like they've got orange spice gas in the helmets and people are free framed on the HBO Max. And it, it seems to be there's a slight blueness to the eyes. Or, but, you know, it's, it's very hard to tell because of the, the mask and the, the gas in there. Uh, but for me, I, uh, I know we've discussed this before. I, I like the beginning and the end of this scene as well, because we've got a lovely transition with Paul listening to the film book, talking about how spice is essential for, for space travel. And that segues beautifully into the, the ship leaving the Highliner as the, the dialogue overlays that. And then at the very end as well, where they... You know, it's done, it's done. And there's a kind of, you know, you can read that several ways. You know, he's, he's basically signed his own death warrant with that. Uh, so there's a there's a lot to to interpret in that scene, I think. Honestly, you guys, I think we could do a whole, a whole show just on this scene because there's so many dynamics politically going on in this scene. Um, <clears throat> you guys have talked about some of the really important ones. The one that, that, had the most emotional impact on me was the Reverend mother looking at Lady Jessica. Um, you can see there's almost a dialogue with words going on that we don't actually see between that Reverend mother looking at Jessica and then looking at Paul and Jessica's realizing that, you know, the Bene Gesserit are like, okay, Jessica, what have you done? Is this the one are you loyal to us? I mean, there's just so much going on there. And, and you see fear, just like in Leto, you see fear in Jessica as well. And, and so, yeah, there's just, you know, talking about this, the scale, I, I love how just visually what I think Denis has done is he's taken pages of, of, of dialogue or, or words from the book and condensed it into this visual scene where we see the scale, we, we learn a lot about um, the Atreides just in a, in a quick second of seeing all their troops and they, they chant the name and it is very militaristic and very loyal and they have, a, they have high morals, you know? Um, it establishes a lot about who, these, who this house is. Um, but I also love kind of the ominous nature of this Herald of the Change, who's not a, he's not a bad person, but there's just sort of this ominous feeling of even the distance that the, the Herald of the Change keeps away from Leto. It's like, why are they standing so far apart? You know, why are they not talking? Isn't this a, isn't this, isn't a House Atreides doing what they've been asked to do? Aren't they being a good citizen by taking over Arrakis? Well, that's because everybody kind of knows this is a setup. This is a trap. Leto knows it. Um, but yet it's all this formality that, you know, yes, we will take over. There's no call. We will not answer. And, and yet there's a lot of darkness kind of going on underneath this scene. 
So, but the Benny Gesserit interaction and, and, and Jessica's uh, just the way she's communicating so much with her eyes and turning back and forth, looking between Paul and, and the, the Reverend Mother. I just loved that because as a fan of the book, I kind of know the detail of what's going on there. I'm not sure the other audience members that haven't read it caught on to that. Maybe they see, you know, Jessica maybe reacting like what's going on here, but no, we, those of us that know, we know what's going on there. There's a really interesting shot. I was watching it while you were speaking, Garen, and I was looping it. When the Reverend Mother looks at Jessica, it's the total, like, the B word face to her. And Jessica just turns around and looks at Paul, but Paul looks down. I wonder, and maybe this is just super stupid Simon headcanon, was Jessica using like hand signals to talk to him? Like everything's going to be okay. Don't worry. Could be. Who knows? <laughs> we're we're also, waiting for the uh, delete scene. <laughs> I did. I did like how Leto turned around right before he's going to sign, and he looks right at Paul. You know, I actually like that connection. One of you mentioned that earlier that this is this is a passing on of the legacy. And and so Oscar Isaac, I thought, just did such a great job of being a fatherly leader. Like I actually felt like he'd be a good dad, you know, and and that and he didn't have a, a ton of on screen time. He had a fair amount. But so anyway. Wow, there's a lot going on in this scene, a, a ton. Yeah, I agree. Like you, you can dig into this for, for a long time. And so going back to the point about technology, because we don't have those uh, computers, as, as I was mentioning earlier, but you, in this scene, you do get to see like the, um, the three different types of, of uh, human evolution. Because as mentioned, you've seen the, the Bene Gesserit. So they've basically um, evolved control of, over their, their bodies and they have like almost, almost superhuman uh, abilities. So they're basically like the... Uh, pinnacle of humanity and we, we saw you know like how Paul tries to use the the voice earlier but then when <laughs> one of them tries to use the use the voice you know there, there's a whole a whole world of difference uh, then of course you have the the navigators although that's, that's not explained but you know like we're, we're picking up on this and those are like the the ones who control space travel because they're able to uh, like look into the future and therefore chart uh, like safe safe paths from one uh, planet to another and so without them you know there would you wouldn't be able to have this like uh, universe of a million worlds that's uh, or empire of a million worlds that's being held together and then of course you have uh, Tuver Hawat and you know he, he does the calculation and you get an idea like okay this this is a human computer so like anything that would have been done past with you know i guess like for us our smartphone that that's uh the the job of the of the mentats so yeah i mean it's, it's not like it's not in your face but like you know it's you basically get to see like all the, all the major factions um of that world and then this was basically where the the imax preview started and you know like we were left hanging for for a couple of months like eager to, you know like i really want to watch the movie uh and then it goes uh straight into, into that scene that we saw in the, in the trailer with uh with uh, Duncan Idaho uh, arriving in the in the hangar and like the conversation with uh, with Paul, so I'll start with with you, Mark. I don't think we've we've talked about that scene specifically. So, what what was your takeaway from this uh, conversation between the friends? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure we have talked about this, but yeah, we've seen pretty much all of it in the trailer, and then there was also I think it was a YouTube advert as well that had almost all of the scene as well. Um, but I, again, it's a nice little thing where Paul is. The movie breathes, you know, Paul says to Duncan, 
he's he's been having uh, he wants to tell tell him something we get Duncan's response that you know you can tell him anything so immediately you get that uh, idea that there's a long friendship between them and then there's several seconds where Paul is struggling to to find how to broach the subject with Duncan you know he's going to tell Duncan that he's going to die in his dreams and you know again in Rise of Skywalker this would be snap 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 cut 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 Marvel movie colorful explosions but here is it's Paul and he's you can see he's looking down he's trying to find the words uh, and then when he does tell Duncan that he's he's going to die Duncan tries to change the mood immediately makes it into a joke um uh, dreams make good stories um it's it's a wonderful scene um and it strengthens that relationship between Paul and Duncan uh something in the Lynch movie we basically get you know may the hand of God be with you uh, and that's pretty much the interaction between Paul and Duncan uh so yeah it's great scene lovely effects and I was gonna note that there was one important piece of information in, in that scene uh, which is we know that Duncan is leaving to Arrakis uh, two weeks in advance of the others so that that's like one of the few instances we get about how much time is is passing in the in the beginning of the movie because it it does you know even though we have some of these more intimate scenes like it does go by quite quickly so we get the the idea that you know there's there's still two weeks uh here before uh you know the the main Atreides family uh joins um Duncan on Arrakis what I was going to say now that we've seen the scene officially there was the advert there was also you know the part of it in the trailer there's no mention of uh, Chani whatsoever in the trailer we're believed to talk that he's talking to Duncan about you know Chani it's all about Duncan's faith you know what will happen to Duncan and I love the quietness I had a dream pause this is what happened and Duncan plays it off kind of cool like cool so I met up with the Fremens I guess that worked out huh awesome oh yeah you're gonna die and then you can see Jason Momoa Take a little breather and be like, what did you say? Like, in the back of his head, okay, Paul, kick back. But it's it's also very interesting because we do have a cameo by a little bug that's been all around the internet recently. <laughs> and we'll talk more about that eventually. But, um, yeah, beautiful scene. And I know, Garen, this makes you think of, like, a next week hangar. And in the background, if you look, there's a ship that's kind of shaped like maybe an X-Wing prototype. <laughs> when Duncan first lands, and that was one of my first things, I was like, hmm, it's like a mixture of an X-Wing and a Naboo fighter. You know, I, I really liked the pacing of this scene. I also loved the composition, the setup, where um, we get to see... Duncan's reaction as he's kind of underneath his his ship kind of fixing something or and and so we get to see his reaction when Paul finally you know gets around to to, to voicing and I see you lying dead you know and then you see because Duncan is imagine we we really this is like a, an uncle nephew kind of a relationship as it were you know Paul's a young teenager Duncan's an adult right Duncan's had a lot of life experience he's he doesn't want to just react to, to freak Paul out. He's going to respond, you know, to kind of put him at ease. But you saw the look in his eyes as the camera, as he was pointed toward us, the camera, that he was, he was like, oh my gosh, what, what if, 
what if Paul's right? You know, I mean, you could see that response, but I love how this scene, uh, you know, you keep saying it, Simon, it's like it allows it to breathe. And so it feels real. You know, sometimes in some science fiction and some movies of any type, it's like they're just robotically kind of going through their lines. And with this, it feels like the relationship really is close bonded friends. And, and one of them is young and learning. And I love how Paul wanted to go to, cause he's like, I want to go with you. You know, well, that would be natural for a teenager to say, because he, he looks up to Duncan, but he wants to be there to save Duncan because he cares about him, you know? And I just thought the play out of this in such a short period of time was masterfully done. And yes, I did totally dig the hangar. I was looking all around and how many people are in the background and, you know, I, I do. I, I really love that stuff. But even more, I love that I'm caring about these characters and the relationships are bonded. I love it. You know, it. this scene makes me think not as dark and I hate using the word emo. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Mr. Robot, with Robbie Malik. It felt like a Mr. Robot scene and not because they're robotic. That's not what the show is about at all, but very well acted. It takes time. It's slow. It's slow, but yet it's a short scene. It's it's maybe one of the top like five scenes in the movie for me. And like in the book, we know Paul doesn't have any friends of his age. And we know that Gurney and Duncan are his friends, his mentors. And you're right, it's that total uncle, like, hey, Duncan's the cool older brother slash uncle. I know when my brother came to town when I was little and he's like, this is when I would live in LA. And he's like, well, I'm going to go to guitar center. I can't play an instrument to save my life. But I was like, okay, can I tag along? Can I go to guitar center with you? Like, so I feel like that's Paul right there. Like, Hey, can, can I, can I hang out? Also, you're going to die. So I, I kind of want to save your life, but is it cool? Can I go with you? And the two weeks part is very interesting because I talked to Marcus about something that we'll get to timeline wise yeah and then we go uh, straight into the, the the next scene again with with paul and he's he's walking on the like the sea, seaside uh, cliffs of of Calum. and the location that they they chose for for this is just just stunning because you, you have like the the ocean in the background that really showcases what what sort of uh, uh plant they're living on like i mean of course you had those uh the, the storms but you also have all, all that uh, beauty at the same time um and yeah i've there are a lot of things that I love about the scene, but this was also one of the scenes where I did have uh, a few uh, nitpicks into like how they handled the, the conversation between uh, uh, Paul and uh, Duke Leto. This was one of the scenes where people were nitpicking the fact that uh, Paul calls Leto dad, <laughs> not father or anything but dad. But as you were saying, you know, it's very natural. It's very teenager. Uh, it's not formal and it just shows the loving relationship between uh, Paul and Leto. Um, it's it's a bit of a, a strange scene, I guess, because Leto is is trying to prepare Paul. Leto knows that he's they're walking into a trap, and he, he wants Paul to be ready for what's to come. You know, he doesn't want him to go off. He says, "You know, you can't go off and play with your mate Duncan on Arrakis. You need to come with us. You need to be prepared." The Fremen could potentially be there. Their allies. I think he talks about uh, desert power in this scene, um, but it, it is 
it is a Paul and Leto scene and one of the, the few we get in the movie, so it's an important scene in that point. It's a very gothic-looking scene, not just because of the cemetery, but if you look at the lighting, the costume, it's very um, memento mori, like Leto knows that he's going to die. You know, memento mori means eventually, like, everyone dies. That's like the Cliff Note version of it. But it's very much, I'm doing this for you again, Paul. You know, and he tells him, like, you're going to have to lead. I didn't want to lead. I wanted to be a pilot. And in my head, I'm like, well, Oscar Isaac, in another universe, <laughs> you are the best pilot ever. Sorry, Han Solo. Um, but just a beautiful scene. And it's also them not being in front. I, you can see, like, security. Obviously, you know, they're not going to let Leto just walk around the cemetery by himself. But it's very, it's father and son, you know. So he calls him dad. It's not the end of the world. He doesn't call him, well, my child, you know, he calls him my son. And it's a beautiful moment between two family members. And it's pretty much, once again, the whole, I don't know how much time I'm going to have left with you. So I'm telling you this, you know, and once again, we get more about the bull. Like grandfather, you know, fought bulls. That, that got a chuckle out of me. I don't know if anyone else laughed about that. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, look where that got him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and how the scene ends also is very much they look at the graves and they're like, you have to do this for them. And I'm what I'm thinking is those are past Atreides, you know. It's the grandfather, the great-grandfather, the great-grandmother. You know, it's the, I guess it would be the Atreides Cemetery. Like, we don't know about this. This isn't in the book. But it's a beautiful scene. And also, if you ever want to know what the Pacific Northwest looks like, that's pretty much it. That's what Washington looks like. Cloudy and beautiful scenery. You know, I really liked the way this scene could have been all about, I mean, Leto did kind of talk about it. He kind of, at the very beginning, as they start walking, Leto's kind of making the argument for, you know, why this could make sense. You know, why going to Arrakis could actually turn in our favor if we, harness the power of, of the natives, the, the, the Fremen. Um, but what I like about it is it didn't just continue with that sort of logical approach to why this is happening, but instead it, it transformed more into a re the relationship definition of father and son, um, where I actually really like um, how, you know, you, you see Paul doubt himself, like, I don't, I don't know if I'm up to this. Like, what if I, what if I'm not what you expect me to be? What, what son doesn't think that as a teenager? We all go through that, right? But to have um, Leto's response be so healthy. <laughs> I'm a psychology major in college, and that was a really healthy response by a dad to not just say, oh, no, son, you'll do fine. Don't worry about it. But instead, he's like, you know, even if you weren't, you are still everything I ever wanted you to be. Like, that's just really good writing. That's really good character development right there. Um, but yeah, it, it is kind of a, it's not a dark scene. They're out, in the, they're out in the sunlight, but it has kind of a dark kind of ominous feel to it. But I like how we're getting these characters more defined. Uh, uh, the, and what you're just talking about, Garen, I think that that's, that's the part that I absolutely love about the scene because it perfectly establishes that, that relationship between a father and son and you, you, you get that dynamic. 
um, I guess what I would nitpick or like what I'm more critical about this, this scene is how they handled the exposition. Uh, for, for me, it was a bit hard to believe that like, you know, two weeks before they're leaving to Arrakis, like this is the first time he's talking to, to Paul about, you know, like, you know, our position in the, in the launch rod and, and how the, the emperor is, uh, is uh, you know, is threatened by us. Like, I feel that this was a, would be something that they had talked about, you know, already in, in the past. So it felt sort of like that sort of, uh, yeah, almost like a soap opera moment where you're like, uh, where they're sort of like, you know, in more like obviously like talking about, oh, yeah, this is this is the situation. Your your uncle sitting over there, like he does, you know, this for a living. And like, you know, um, I, I mean, it. It works, but I, I, I felt that th this was one of the one of the points where I felt that the exposition overall was the weakest, which I think um, in other parts of the movie that that it, it really really did hit hit well. So, so that that was that was my uh, my only uh, criticism with this this particular scene. Marcus, I think that's fair, um, but again, you you only have so much time to work with when you're creating a film and you're you're writing these scenes. So you're you're right. I, I do I do see the, the weakness of the dialogue here. You're kind of throwing a lot of stuff in that they would have definitely had these kind, kinds of conversations prior to now, right? But again, you, you've got this moment, you've got to establish this scene and, and understand these characters' connection. So, you know, films writing a book, you just have sort of this unlimited ability to like you know, create this world and, and the dynamics of the characters in, in a film, you're, it's really a creative limitation exercise, you know. Uh, I was just going to say that uh, there is a scene a bit later on where Leto says, you know, Paul needs to sit in on the staff meetings. So it is almost as if Paul is coming of age. He's being involved in the politics of the house a bit more at this point. So, yeah, it's a little bit exposition-y um, for the sake of exposition, but... I think it does sort of fit into the arc of Paul's journey. Lito might have left it a bit late to, to brief Paul on all these bits, but uh, he's, he's becoming, he's, he's training up to become the Duke. But I feel like maybe he's a teenager and you got to tell him a couple of times, like, I know I heard my mom tell me a million times, hey, you should clean your room. You know, don't forget that you have hockey practice this weekend, you know, back and forth. So maybe it was like, Okay, I'm going to tell him one more time that this is very important, you know, desert power. You know, all the way through this movie in my head, I was like, hashtag desert power. Yeah, again, I think the, the locations that, that it, they chose uh, for this are just stunning. Uh, one thing I, that I had mentioned earlier, I, you, you don't get a sense that there is like a town or a city nearby because this is basically a capital, right? You, like here, you're only seeing the, the castle. So maybe, you know, like the, the city is just like a bit on a distance. They would have loved to see more about, you know, what, like even if it was just like a couple of uh, seconds of getting an idea of like how this, the city life is. But yeah, um, stunning scenery. And then you go straight into... Um, the, the scene where where Paul uh, and and Gurney have their uh, their uh, their fight in the in the training room and uh, it was described as uh, by the fight corner coordinator Roger Ron as one of the the most intense uh, uh, sequences in terms of the, the fight scenes so uh, Garen what, what what are your thoughts about uh, yeah th this whole interaction between uh, Paul and one of his his other friends although this is I guess more of a stern uh, presence in his life yeah. So here's where um, I had kind of a different mental image of Gurney. Um, 
I, he's obviously stern. He's, he's, uh, he's kind of the right-hand man to Leto and, and obviously is a very commanding personality. Um, I thought Josh Brolin made it even more intense. Like I thought he added even more sort of rigidity to this, to this character, but having watched it the second time, I actually really liked how it's because he cares about Paul. He really cares about this sort of, you know, son like figure in his life. He really wants him to survive. He wants him to be ready. And so he's, he's not giving him any leniency, you know, and, and I thought this scene uh, also established the, the importance of the shields and the, the importance of this is not Star Wars with laser blasters everywhere. This is this is more of a almost a medieval. We're fighting with swords now, uh, kind of a kind of a world. And I don't think people think that when they go in to see a science fiction film, they don't think of a lot of swords. I mean, lightsabers, yes, but not actual swords and blades and things like that. So I think a lot happens in this. But you also, like, I think one of you mentioned this coming of age, you're, you're like, wow, this kid can fight like this kid, even though he doesn't uh, win the, you know, the, the sparring with Gurney because Gurney, you know, has a blade to his, his belly. But I think it really does show you this kid has some potential. You know, one, one very important part of this dialogue and early on in this scene, he's like, so now that Duncan's off world, you're the sword master. So it kind of already shows where Gurney's status is in House of Trades. You know, I would have loved when he calls him old man to hear Gurney call him a young pup. You know, I would have loved that. But it's a great scene. And it does show that Paul is already a great fighter. And this scene will help in the long run with one of the final last scenes of this film, you know, and also if they do it right, and I, I believe they will in the second part, where a character that was portrayed by Sting in the 80s, this scene will also book in. So it's very, you get the three sword fights in Dune. It's a great scene. It's also the design of it makes me think of a very Frank Lloyd Wright type of house design. It's a beautiful, minimalist like set there's not too much stuff and a lot of other movies you would have had a million stuff in the background going back to you know the star wars sequels even the prequels you would have had droids grand there's no droids and you know dune but you would have had something in the background you would have had a bunch of stuff it's just filmmaking 101 like for set designs. I feel like this movie will be looked at for many reasons and the set designs are a big part of it. Yeah, the, the set design and the, the lighting coming in through the window, silhouetting them, um, great stuff. One line I did like, because it comes back a bit later, is um, you know Paul recognises his footsteps and we get that line later on in the, in the spice harvest in scene. Yeah, and then immediately after this, um, this scene, we, we actually... Uh, jump to a completely different uh, planet and uh, you see the Stark uh, contract. So it goes, goes to Getty Prime and that's the, the home world of, uh, of House Harkonnen. So here we, we get to see the, you know, the, the, the brutal uh, animals that, that Gurney was, uh, was talking about uh, just a moment ago. So I, I just lo love that, uh, that transition here. And uh, yeah, of course you have um, 
Raban and he's he's furious. And uh, this this is one of the scenes that uh, I think uh, David Dasmalkin had had referred to when when he was talking about like uh, uh, Dave Bautista giving a standout performance about like how much like uh, emotion and how furious uh, he, he was in that uh, in that scene. So, uh, Simon, what was your first impression of uh, Giddy Prime? I loved it. It's it made me think of I don't know if you guys ever watched the documentary about the Jovanovsky film that was supposed to be made, and he wanted um, Geiger or Giger, depends how you say it, to design who did the designs of the Xenomorphs for Alien to do Giddy Prime, and it felt very industrial, and that's what I imagine. It felt very Geiger-ish. It felt dark. It felt really industrial metal you know maybe it's my love of music that i can see nine inch nails like being in the background a lot in this scene but it's just the total opposite they don't have natural water they have steam coming out there is no greenery whatsoever it's just darkness you know and also that shot of the baron the first time we see him nude in his steam bath is very awkward but you also see the size right away you can see this is a big man you know big man personality and physically which is crucial to the story and i love love everything with piter again and i love that he's calculating you know we see his eyes very much you know doing what a mentat does batista nailed it perfectly in that scene like you see the range and i know dave batista could have that range every time i think of him i still think of him as drax but it was great and the line that i love that the baron says uh, and i'm probably misquoting it one is a gift not a gift very much like what leto is doing for paul hey i'm setting this for you rabon like there's a reason why you're going to come back. You're just going on like a little sabbatical, little vacation, but you're going to come back after this is all done. Comparing again to Lynch, I really like what Denise doing here with, uh, with the Baron because, you know, and what Lynch did is create almost this out of control, just raging man, um, which does create fear and, and does establish him as a, as a bad guy, as the bad guy. But I actually really love how Stellan Skarsgård is just this, it's just this quiet, almost just understated evil. And I, and I think that's brilliant because you've got, you've got Raban who's just out of control, screaming his guts out, you know, because he's so angry and furious that this is going to get handed over. Um, so I just think it's really brilliant uh, character design to create this feeling of, gosh, what is this Baron capable of? Cause I don't understand him. Like what, what is he about? Like what? And, and of course we'll learn that as, as part two and uh, comes along, but I, I just like how it's not, it's understated. And I think that really creates a fearful character. I love it. Yeah. Um, Stella Stalsgall said that he, he hated the Baron armor costume that we see in the, in the toys because he felt that was too marvelish. You know, he doesn't need that armor. So he, and we only see that armor in like one or two brief shots. Uh, so he liked the nighties. You know, he doesn't need that armor. He's a imposing man. He's a dangerous man in and of himself. 
he doesn't need a costume, an Iron Man costume or anything like that to be dangerous. Yeah, and, and what you're saying, uh, Garen, like this, this is like, um, you immediately feel the evil, right? And this is someone you take seriously, whereas like in some of the earlier adaptations, you may not have taken them as seriously. Like it was more as, as uh, Denis Villeneuve said, he, he didn't want like the Baron to be a caricature as he maybe was in some of the previous adaptations. He wanted this to be like, you know, a frightening presence, like uh, someone who has like extreme intelligence. And, you know, you see like, even though... Um, the Harkonnens are they're known for, for being brutal, but you see that the, the Baron, he's, he's very calculating. You know, he, he knows exactly what's, uh, what's going on. And then again, like here, like uh, as going back to, to Piter, like we, we saw a bit of uh, Tuver Hawat for House Atreides in, in the, during the ceremony. And then here, here we see Piter. And these are basically like the, the two weapons in a way, like the, these human computers that are sort of planning the strategy in the, in the background of the, these two houses. We, we don't see a lot of it in, in the movie, but we return to Caledon and then we see again the, the Highliner and we see the Bene Gesserit uh, ship, which uh, yeah, has, has a very unique design as well. So it's, uh, I just love how all the factions, they have like very uh, distinctive, like whether it's the, the settings of their, their world, their, their ship design, the, the outfits, like you, you really see the, the characterization of, of these different settings. Uh, so they're, they're arriving in Calden. And one, one thing that really stands out to me, and like we didn't, we actually didn't see much of this at all in the in trailers or promo materials, is like the, the stormy uh, nights on, on, on Calden. So like uh, that really adds so much ambience to the environment where, you know, like the, it's just pouring and like, uh, you know, the, uh, like uh, Lady Jessica is, is waiting outside for the, uh, for the Reverend Mother to, to arrive, I feel just like adds so, so much uh, atmosphere and uh, to to this. I guess it's a it's really heavy scene that, that's coming up. Um, so before there's actually the Gondor Jabbar scene, we we have the the introduction to uh, to Doctor Yui. Uh, I like Paul's first line. It's he's, there, he's friends with Duncan and Gurney, and he's like, "What's Yui's doing here?" <laughs> Almost dismissive, but uh, yeah, it's he's not expecting anything that happens to him that night. Uh, and Dr. Yui, we've, we get some Chinese dialogue. I, I believe that's authentic Chinese uh, that uh, Dr. Yui and Paul are speaking to each other. Uh, I've seen people complaining that that's pandering to the Chinese audience. Um, but, you know, I, th I think if they're going to be speaking English in the future, they can be speaking Chinese as well. I've got not got a problem with that. And I did like the way that uh, they've adapted it slightly. So Dr. Yui is almost... Psychic, he he lays hands on Paul to to sense how he's doing. He hasn't got a tricorder, tricorder or anything like that to 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 do those readings. Uh, so a, a nice scene to show the the relationship between Paul and Yui. Uh, Yui confides in Paul to be wary of the Benny Gesserit. Yeah. Um, so when I first read the book way back in in eighty three eighty four, I actually envisioned Yui as Asian. So when, when that was, uh, when he was cast, uh, and sorry, I don't, I don't know the actor's name, but, um, I thought that was brilliant because the name sounds very, uh, Asian. And I actually agree with Mark. I, I don't think speaking, uh, a Chinese dialect is pandering. I think it's natural because this is an extension. This is 20,000 years from now from our human race, right? So, why wouldn't, you know, uh, someone of, of Asian descent also be speaking 
in, in, a, in a language related to their ethnic background. That just seems natural and, and correct to me. Um, but you know, we don't we don't see a lot of UE. We, we we see just kind of these few interactions, but I thought it was played very well because I trusted him. I mean, of course, I knew what was going to happen, but to the audience, he's very trustworthy, he's very kind, he's very loving, he's he cares about uh, you know what's going on. He even communicates things to Paul to prepare him for what's coming. Um, so I actually I actually really like the the UA character. Interesting that you say that when you first read it, you pictured him of Asian descent. Every time I heard the name Yui, I always thought of him being Russian or Ukrainian. You know, that scene is so crucial once again because it sets up who the Bene Gesserits are even more just between that little dialogue. And if you put the subtitles on HBO Max, it does say speaking in Mandarin. I'm perfectly fine with it. It's this is, you know, humanity's future in the long run. And in the later books, they even mention, you know, major characters in human history. So, and once again, we get the bull. We get another shot of the bull right before Paul enters the room. So it's a great shot. Uh, when they do arrive, it makes me think of a movie that terrified me as a kid. You know, and you guys might laugh, but I don't care. It's still one of the most scariest movies ever to me is E.T. It felt very E.T.-like when they landed. And I'm not bashing the movie whatsoever, <laughs> but E.T. used to scare the living crap out of me. But that shot as they're landing with, you know, the trees and all that made me go, oh, this is creepy. And this is hitting some creepy Simon vibes where <laughs> then he knows I'm afraid of E.T., because the Benny Jetserits are supposed to be scary. They're not, you know, they're not the Girl Scouts. They're not going to come and give you cookies. You know, they're not the Red Cross. Definitely not. You know, they have, once again, that gothic element to them of they're powerful. And in one of the upcoming scenes, Paul knows that they're powerful. And once again, it you could have done it really slow, but the dialogue, and we'll get to that scene where it shows, hey, these are why these ladies are so powerful early on and not make it slow for, you know, the audience. Yeah, I, th I think you take that deleted scene when the Reverend Mother tells Paul to phone home then. If, uh... <laughs> the hand in the box, the phone home, you know, <laughs> all creepy. Yeah, and uh, I, I wanted to touch on uh, the part about the bull because uh, this this is the moment I, I was thinking about because we already saw it in the breakfast scene. We saw the the um, uh, painting of uh, Paulus Atreides. We saw the bull. We've it's already been established that this is part of the Atreides culture, which was uh, by the way in influenced by uh, by ancient uh, Greece. Uh, like uh, you can see that from from the, from the names and um, the significance of that of that, that bullhead is. That's actually the the bull that killed um, uh, Paul's grandfather in a, in a bullfight. So uh, yeah, uh, Paul's Atreides. He was he was a popular uh, duke, but he he met an untimely end in in one of these these fights, and that that's that's covered in uh, in the expanded uh, Dune books uh, how how that happened. Uh, but basically, this is significant because uh, Duke Leto keeps this uh, this bull's bull's head as a reminder there. So it's uh, it's important and. and you know, this comes up multiple times in the movie, like uh, also in the, in the graves, uh, grave scene, as, as we were talking about. 
so I know that that question has has come up a couple of times. So it, there, there is a special significance uh, to that. Yeah. So so just just talking about this this beginning part of of Calvin and the the movie really does take its its time to uh, to explore like the the home world of, of House House Atreides. You know, there, there's so much uh, so much in here. Uh, so we're gonna uh, finish our first uh, uh, like in-depth uh, breakdown here, uh, and then uh, next episode we're gonna be looking at departure from Caliban and arrival from from Arrakis. Uh, so let's uh, sign off. Uh, so Mark, thanks again for uh, for joining us for this uh, this special episode. Uh, where can people find uh, find you online? Uh, thanks so much for inviting me back. Uh, people can find me at June Info on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all the socials. And Garen at Dune Companion on Twitter. And uh, just, I love doing this. This is just so much fun to be with people who appreciate it like I do, and we can just dig deep. It's fun. Uh, you can find me at S. Dowdy um, on the socials. Also, thank you. I, I didn't mention it last time I was on, but thank you again to everyone that watches, listens, you know, we have a nice little community, and this is one of the highlights of my week, boys. I love nerding out about Dune and talking about it and going deep. And we're only 20 minutes into the movie. <laughs> yeah, th thanks, thanks so much, everybody who's, uh, who's uh, engaging and supporting us. Uh, so this is Marcus Gabriel. Uh, you can find me on dunesnet.com and dunesnet on Twitter and Instagram. And look forward to talking to you for our next uh, special episode. hope you've enjoyed Dune Talk. Remember to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications so you know when the next episode drops. Stay tuned to dunenewsnet.com and add us to your social feeds. Be the first to hear breaking news and reviews. <laughs>